Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I would say the new normal is instability. It's one of these situations where it really is a, a case of humanity being able to survive or, or not. I, I know that's drastic and I don't say that lightly. I really don't. I'm not a scaremongerer. But really, when you start to destabilise the ice sheets, there are processes that go on for hundreds, if not thousands of years until they reach their new equilibrium. Around the time I was writing my latest book on the climate crisis, trying to find a hopeful path through the cascading realities and data, one of Australia's leading climate scientists, Dr Joelle Gerges, was researching and co-authoring the IPCC's sixth assessment report, the three million word Big Kahuna State of the Climate Report commissioned by the UN that comes out every seven years or so. Joelle and I spoke a number of times during this three-year time frame. I called on her to help me out with some climate science and I wound up doing an early read of her latest book. And during this time, we spoke of our climate grief or solastalgia as it's been dubbed by another climate scientist here in Australia, Glenn Albrecht. Solastalgia describes a terrible existential homesickness from nature that we experience as we witness its destruction. During one of our chats, Joelle tells me something that I quote in my book, and so many readers, and perhaps you remember this bit, have quoted back to me because it represented something of a penny drop moment for them. Science has done everything it can, Joelle told me. All the science is in. Now we need the influencers, the teachers, the business owners to take the baton. Anyway, that's by way of a bit of context. In this episode, I actually asked my Substack newsletter membership community to drive the questions that I put to Joelle. They are a combination of reality check questions and requests for distillations of the complex science into pithy elevator pitches that we can deliver to, say, a recalcitrant uncle at a family gathering who loves to pull out that one about how, oh, you know, we've had climate warming cycles before, blah, blah, blah. Joelle and I finally met at the Byron Writers Festival last month to record this episode. Joelle had just published her book, Humanity's Moment, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope. My assistant, Liana, who has worked with me for actually two years, she and I met for the first time on the day that we did this recording and she joins us and I draw her in from time to time. Anyway, over to Joelle. Joelle. 
Joelle, it is so wonderful to finally meet you after sort of picking your scientific brain as we've both written books during the pandemic and as our beautiful planet and our beautiful country has burned and flooded and you've been at the coalface in so many ways. You are a lead author of the sixth assessment of the IPCC report, which is big and huge and devastating. But what I'd really love you to do before we kick off into the questions that I got everyone to pose for you in anticipation of this interview, could you explain what is actually involved as a lead author? Because I don't think people understand, for starters, you do it for free. Well, firstly, it's really nice to meet you finally, Sarah, and it's great to be here. Yeah, so I I think it's important to give people a bit of a background in terms of what IPCC is. So it's a United Nations process which brings together scientists from all over the world. And so for this round of IPCC, around about a 1,000 nominations were put forward for lead authors. So they're leading scientists in their different respective countries. And then about 200 of us got selected to actually produce the report. And we were selected based on our expertise. This is from about 60 countries. Is that about right? Yeah, I think it's around about that. I think Mm. there were 232 scientists. Scientists from, it'd be probably about 60 countries, but all over the world, a truly United Nations experience, honestly. And we're basically there to provide our expertise and read thousands of different scientific articles and then try and synthesize that into our best understanding of the science. So effectively, we were just reading machines and then we would put together these different chapters. And each of those chapters are about 80,000 words. And there's about 12 chapters per volume. So you're looking at a volume that's about a million words. And there's three of those and a couple of other special reports. So it's a colossal process. And We all are volunteers. So even though it's a prestigious post, it's not paid. The only payment we get is really economy airfares to attend the meetings. Which is a moot point during the pandemic, right? Exactly. So we had three lead author meetings, which was really amazing. One was in China, one was in Canada, another one was in France. But then, yes, COVID hit in 2020, and then we had to go online. And as you might imagine, trying to have a United Nations meeting in a whole range of time zones was really hard, very often for me. Those meetings sometimes would be like 5 a.m. on a Saturday morning. Sometimes it would be 2 or 3 a.m. on a weekday. I'm a university lecturer and I'm a research scientist, so I'm juggling all of that activity on the top of volunteering my sort of expertise to develop this report. How many years did it take you? Yeah, so it took years. So this process really kicked off in 2018, in the middle of 2018, and then the report came out last year in 2021 in August And in that time, so much happened, as you were just saying before, particularly as an Australian scientist, it was really, really interesting being involved at this sort of UN level and seeing the global trends and then coming back to see Australia on fire. 25% of Australia's forests burnt in the Black Summer fires. We had 3 billion animals either killed or displaced. And to me, that was all unfolding as I was sitting there collating all this evidence from all over the world. And then we've had catastrophic flooding. We've had bleaching of coral reef systems. So for me, it was this climate emergency unfolding in real time. And as an Australian, I just sort of felt like we were a poster child for climate change. And people would be emailing me from the group saying, are you all right down there? We're a vision from the future. Exactly right. Mm. Exactly right. So so for me, it stopped being this academic exercise because as an IPCC scientist, we sort of have to put our own subjectivity aside. It's really about just an objective assessment of the data set that we have in front of us, which is thousands and thousands and thousands of peer-reviewed articles. I guess for me, that was really confronting to see these projections and these observations really springing to life in a country like Australia, but not some distant end of the century or 2050 or anything like that. We were talking about right now. So that sense of urgency for me 
I guess, as an Australian involved in that sort of UN process became a really real and visceral experience of understanding that climate change is here, it's happening now. And as Australians, we are really, really vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. Well, I'm I'm going to take the uh, privilege of asking the first question. Sure. <laughs> I think it's the second question, but um, how did you deal with that emotionally? Because I also know that you're open about the fact that you suffer from depression. You're also a nature lover. And I know that from going through the same process, the grief that I felt because I couldn't shut my eyes to it because I was writing a bloody book about it. And it wells up in me constantly, reading your book, having to talk about all of this at this Byron Writers Festival. It brings it up every time. I feel feel a ball of grief here, you know, and I'm tearing up now because it breaks my heart. What's your take? How do you cope with all of this? Well, firstly, I really relate to what you're saying. And I think for me, it depends on which day you catch me in terms of how I'm feeling about things. The reality is, is I think you'd have to be emotionally numb or even emotionally dead on the inside to not feel anything when you start to look at the numbers and realize exactly what's happening right now and what's at stake. So for me, I guess, just like anybody, I'm still a person. I have my own background. Some aspects of my own personal background are quite difficult. So I'm a fairly sensitive person, which I have to put aside when I do my scientific work because it's, it's, I guess, a, a different. It's a, it's a it's personal. Not professional to bring that into the exa- equation, exactly, especially right. right now, and particularly in science. And I think that's a really important point, Joelle, is that people talk about how they're sensitive or they've got anxiety, and therefore they don't want to come near this topic. And mm. I'm like. Sorry, too bad. In fact, we need sensitive people because you're probably going to pick up on things that need to be highlighted for the rest of the the planet. So exactly, it is a message I do like to, and sensitive people are often relieved to hear that because mm. they don't want to block their ears to it really. Anyways. No, on that point, that's a really good point. Actually, I, part of the reason why I wrote the book that I wrote, so my new book, Humanity's Moment, there's a special shout out to creatives, actually, because myself, I'm, I'm a creative person as well. I'm a writer, I'm a musician, I'm just a sensitive soul. And I really did want to have a conversation that felt more inclusive for people that aren't necessarily tuning into the intricacies of energy policy or really complex discussions about renewable energy and so on and so forth. So I tried to write a book that was really trying to reframe the climate change challenge as a cultural issue, not so much even a scientific issue. Because to be honest, all the scientific evidence we need, we have, trust me. Like I, I said about the IPCC volumes, there are a million words each and we've got a few of those and we've, yeah. we've been doing those since 1990. So the case is only strengthened. We know exactly what is wrong, with what is wrong that we're destabilizing the Earth's climate. We know what we need to do about it in terms of reducing emissions. But how we go about that is really quite an interesting thing. So from my perspective, turning this conversation into a cultural conversation feels really, really important to me because I think until we actually feel the grief of what it is that we're losing and losing in real time, mind you, we're watching this happen on our watch. And so I think firstly, we need to feel that. We, we need to get a sense of the world. Maybe in the past, we always thought that life would indefinitely just stretch out in front of us and we could continue on. And what we did was inconsequential. I guess to some degree, I might've even felt that, that maybe it, it wasn't as bad as I thought. Or- even as recently as five years ago, I yeah. was still thinking something magical will step in and this thing that's a little bit further away, it'll not come about or it won't be as yeah. bad as we thought. Mm. Yeah. But I think for me, working at that UN level, it's sort of like having a massive jigsaw puzzle. And every single country was a different part of that puzzle in the oceans and the, and the, and the Earth's polar regions as well. And 
putting together all that evidence really painted a picture that was horrifying. And so for me, I think you say, how do I deal with the the grief and the depression around it? Well, some days I'm curled up in the fetal position and I'm um, depressed and that's the truth. And I, I write about that. Sometimes I write about that privately in my own journal. But actually to write the book I just wrote, I found the only way I could write this book was to be authentic about how I was feeling because I had to go back to my journal to mind my own emotional response, which I was often writing on long haul flights, just trying to write things down before um, I forgot them firstly, or secondly, just trying to process everything that I'd just experienced in these extremely intense meetings where we're talking about ocean warming in the deepest ocean trenches and the you know highest mountaintops and literally warming is happening everywhere and the planet is changing really, really quickly. So I guess one of my ways of dealing with it was writing. As a writer, that's what we do, right? Yeah. And I'll be the bar with a, I write about this in my book is that, you know, one of my salves, my techniques for handling a panicky, grief-stricken, high-intensity moment is to sit down immediately and whatever it is, a back of a receipt, a serviette at a bar, I just write it out. And I can't even read it back to myself. It doesn't matter. It's just to it, get it out slows of it down. Mm, it mm. slows it down and actually you're paying attention to it. And I think that's what I'm hearing from you is that it's really inappropriate to be running from these feelings and it's appropriate to be curled up in fetal position every now and then and just and doing the grief. To be honest, as I, I say in my book somewhere, I think the only way through the, this is through the heartland of grief, not through a detour of denial, because yeah. it only ever is a detour. I mean, we can't actually get away from the reality of this. It's the same thing. Just because you ignore something doesn't mean it goes away, right? As a climate scientist, I'm sort of faced with this reality, not only in my personal life, but also in my professional life. And there are some days that are actually really hard. To be in front of this material all the time is really, really hard. Or when you do put yourself out there and you're vulnerable, sometimes we get attacked like I did this morning, receiving some hate mail just because of a piece that I put out, which had an emotional response to my work. And because it's a little bit taboo in my field, although my, my colleagues are really supportive of me because I never come out and say anything crazy because I'm a scientist and that's not what we You're do. You're not allowed to. We're not allowed to, but it's also just not how I operate. But it's just this reminder that there, there are just, I guess, really different ways of, of, of people processing it. And some people will turn that outward into aggression and hatred and all that other sort of stuff. I hate to, yeah, I hate to say it. It's often white men, white old men. Do you tend to agree? Absolutely. Let's name it and call yep. it out for what it is. And then mm. the way I handle that is just to go, they are all feeling the same pain whether they're projecting outwards, whether they're trying to be constructive, whether they're trying to then roll up their sleeves and doing something about it. Can I say one other thing on Please that do. point? Go for because it. Because I don't think I answered part of um, your question was how else I deal with it. It's also through nature. I mean, I'm really lucky enough to live in this beautiful part of northern New South Wales where we have incredible biodiversity. We've got World Heritage listed rainforests and just marine reserves all off the coast here. And for me, sometimes I just go to the beach and I'll just cry. Mm. I just sit there, I look at the ocean, I cry. And sometimes uh, that makes me feel better. You know, I think just being around part of an intact ecosystem, which I think being in a place like this really reminds me that we are all just animals on the planet, ultimately, really. I mean, we overcomplicate matters, but that's actually what we are. And sometimes when you get back to the basics of just going into the ocean, you know, allowing it to just soak into your skin and just feeling the sun and all those sorts of really basic things often bring me back. So trying to get out of my mind and back into my body is really, really important. So I try and ground myself as much as possible. And I think that nature's a really good grounding. I do things like yoga as well. 
I find that really helpful. So I think really it's really important when you are engaged in this type of material is to remember that you are a human on the planet in a body and you have your own limitations and you've got to honour those limitations. So from day to day and week to week, your capacity can change. And I've really discovered that the older that I get, but I try and honour that now a bit more than in the past. It's a responsibility as well. If you're an activist, you've actually got to do self-care, which is where that term originally came from. Um, it was from the black activist movement in the 1960s and 70s. And it's like, you've got to do the self-care so you can go back out again. And interestingly, we're doing a forum, a panel with another author, Delia Falconer, who wrote uh, Signs and Wonder. And one of her big things is actually she finds beauty and wonder even in the destruction process, the death process that we're observing. And so some of the things that emerge, you know, I just saw dinosaur footprints have been found somewhere in Italy, I think it is, as the droughts have opened up creek beds. And I burst into tears at the beauty of that. It's fascinating. it's another level of emotion that we're not talking about yet. Absolutely. What you just said is actually really interesting because it's also this reminder that human history is really layered. And the further back in time you go, like those dinosaur footprints or when you walk the cobblestone streets of Europe or other things like that, or even being in the arid zone here in Australia, there's this timelessness about our landscapes and our cultures, which I think is really important. And I actually find solace in that because I, I feel that there is a wisdom and a resilience in our humanity. And I think we've lost the way a little bit right now, but I think we can come back to these essentials. But it's a reminder that human history is full of drama and death and death and decay and rebirth. But it's trying to hold on for that moment of rebirth and having faith in that. That's right. Okay. That's a really lovely segue, I think, into some of the more nuts and bolts questions that people have for you. So Pip Webb, who is a regular commenter on my Substack newsletter, and and look, there's a couple of other people who've chimed in with similar questions. Stel Dolphes Gates, I think I've pronounced that properly, has asked a similar question too. But essentially, I have a question that always comes up in family debates. Yes, how the earth has climate cycles and deniers say that it is just another climate cycle that we are witnessing and that the planet and people have seen plenty of this before and we've survived. How can you tell that these cycles are changing due to human impact? I think Pip's after a a really Mm. nice, succinct answer to go back to the recalcitrant uncle at the barbecue to say, no, Uncle Bob, this is the scenario. What would you say to that? Well, firstly, it's a really good question and it, and it speaks to really just trying to understand what is the difference between natural climate ver- variability, so the ice ages and all these long-term cycles that we have seen in the past. And no one is disputing that. That's actually what geologists study. They actually look at those times in the Earth's past where we've seen the waxing and waning of ice sheets and sea level going up and down. But when you start to look at the actual geologic evidence, a lot of these things are happening on timescales of tens of thousands of years. So that's always been going on. That's actually the backdrop of our world. That is what actually causes the background climate that we experience. So right now we're in what they call an interglacial. So it's a warm period. So it's not an ice age, it's a warm period. And what's quite different about this ice age compared to other ice ages is that we now have close to 8 billion people on the planet. So at the height of the last ice age, which was about 18,000 years ago, there are about 5 million people. So you can think of the population of Sydney or Melbourne scattered throughout the entire planet. But what we're talking about, which is different to what we've seen in our geologic past, is the fact that we've had humanity, the population of humanity has just skyrocketed, and we saw the industrialization of the planet really around the 1870s. So at that time, we started to burn fossil fuels to, to fuel our, our civilization, and that's when we really start to see CO2 levels just go through the roof. So at the height of the last ice age, you know, we're looking at carbon dioxide levels around about 
280 to 300 parts per million. But right now, we've got carbon dioxide sitting around about 415, 16 parts per million. And most of that has actually happened since 1870. And that's at 50 times the background natural rate from the previous ice age. So just to give you an indication. 50 times. Yeah, so 50. The, the, yes. the rate of increase of CO2 emissions is happening 50 times faster. So it's the speed here that exactly. is really significant. That's right. Because we've actually just, we've basically dug up fossil fuels and burnt them. And because they stay in the atmosphere for up to 500 years. So it's completely years, unnatural to be going this fast. Very, very, very and fast. no opportunity for nature to adapt. Absolutely. But the other problem is, of course, that it's going so fast that we can't adapt. And this is part of the problem. And when we haven't actually stopped burning fossil fuels. So this is, is setting us off into a trajectory, trajectory, which is really in uncharted waters. So basically the difference, so a couple of differences, this rate of change that you just mentioned, but we're also talking about human populations also being present. So, well, that's the thing, right? So the last mass extinction event, a bunch of animals, including dinosaurs, got wiped out. This is what I say to people this time, this extinction event, it's going to be humans that are wiped out. So that it's a moot point discussing all of these other previous, you know, changes. I mean, I think the two points that you're raising here is, first of all, it's humans that are going to be wiped out. And the second point, of course, is we caused it. The real thing to think about here is that we, humans have accelerated the rates of natural variability. And, and now our climate is a combination of human-caused climate change and natural variability on top of each other. So what a warming planet is doing is amplifying yeah. our climate extremes. So all the climate and weather that we experience right now is 1.2 degrees warmer than it was in the pre-industrial time. So all of the droughts, the floods, the hurricanes, the cyclones, all that sort of stuff is now about a degree warmer than it used to be. What that means is that you start getting really extreme conditions playing out that in the past might have been exceptionally rare. But for instance, this black summer bushfire season that we had in 2019-2020 will become an average bushfire season by 2060. So that is just giving you an indication of fossil fuels are cooking the planet. There's no dispute. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the headline statements from the IPCC report. So what is really important is to understand, getting back to Pip's question, is really that we've now laid in a human influence on the top of natural systems and the natural systems can't cope fast enough and human beings can't adapt quickly enough. So that's where we've ended up. I think we can move on to the next question and it's from Emma. Can we turn this mess around or is this the new normal that we have to deal with? And I think this is actually a really good point and I picked this up from the sort of the commentary around the IPCC 6 assessment is that the discussion used to be about mitigation and now we're having to bring in adaptation into the discussion as well, which means we're not going to be able to mitigate this or at least we're not going to be able to stop it completely. We now have to go, all right, resources go into how are we going to survive and at least have something vaguely livable? There's a lot in this question. It's a really, really important one again. What would you like so, to pull out from an IPC scientist point of view? Well, firstly, the, the really important thing I want to stress here is that the IPCC basically says that how bad we let things get is still in our hands. Yes, we are in a mess. There's no denying that. But the level of warming we will experience is directly related to our emissions. Right now, we have a choice. There are different pathways we could take. We could take a low emissions pathway, some kind of middle ground, or we can take high emission pathways. And there are very, very different outcomes as a result of that. So one of the things that IPCC scientists spend a lot of time looking at is those different pathways to basically take that information to the governments of the world and say, which track do we want to go down? 
it's not a done deal is what I really want to say mm. there. So embedded in this question is this sort of idea of people feeling a little bit like it's out of our control. And I think that it's important as a scientist that I try and clear the record on that and say that that's actually not the case. Right. So even if we take a low emissions pathway, which would be essentially every country puts into place every commitment made at the Paris Agreement, let's be honest here, it's still not a pretty future because we're still not going to be below two degrees. No, that's right. And this is what really annoys me is Mm. no one is discussing this. There's still politicians out there going, oh, yeah, 1.5 by 2050. No, that horse has well and truly bolted. Then you talk about two degrees, which is still not pretty, even if we stick to all these commitments, which is not looking like it's very likely, we still aren't going to make it to two degrees. And so now they're saying, well, maybe we can still come in under three. Okay, so much I could say to this, and that's a really nice sort of summary. So yes, you're absolutely right. Basically, the pledges that are on the table with the Paris Agreement are inadequate. No one's going to argue with that. Well, some people might, but I'm telling you, Mm. from the scientific perspective, they are inadequate. So the best case scenario is basically that we could reach two degrees with all of the zero emission pledges that are out there right now. But if you actually take into account what's what's actually been implemented and legislated and things like that, we're looking more along the sort of two to four degrees of warming really. Uh, and, and that is, is, a, is effectively a reconfiguration of the Earth system. So we're talking about the melting of ice sheets, the change in ocean circulation, dieback of the Amazon. I mean, this is fire and brimstone and stuff. And let's talk what the human element. That means billions of people being displaced, let's face it, because yeah. a lot of them live on the coastlines. Yeah, there's basically a quarter of a billion people are already in low-lying areas and you see the vulnerability of those people once the sea levels start to rise and you see those people displaced and that's a big mess and there's already a refugee crisis out there. We could go in all kinds of directions with this and we'll try to answer some of them as we go through the questions. I'm I'm aware that we need to be fairly concise, but I guess what Emma would like to know, it's essentially going to be the new average, right? It's a moving target at the moment. So I would say the new normal is instability. It's one of these situations where it really is a a case of humanity being able to survive or or not. I I know that's drastic and I don't say that lightly. I really don't. I'm not a scaremongerer, but really when you start to destabilize the ice sheets, there are processes that go on for hundreds, if not thousands of years until they reach their new equilibrium. Marianne Gilchrist has asked, what scientific advances or collective initiatives underway give you hope? All the advances in solar power are really inspiring. And here in Australia, we have the the highest number of um, rooftop solar take up of anywhere in the world. And now Australia has about, I think it's 28% of our energy comes from renewable power. Well, just the other day, I think that Australia was powered by more solar energy than traditional fossil fuels. Exactly. Even if it was just for an hour. Exactly. But But this is completely doable. And the states and the territories have been leading the charge. And they're excited. And they're excited. And I think that is exciting. I agree. So up until recently, we didn't really have a federal government that was getting behind a lot of these initiatives. But the thing is, is that Australia is a is the sunniest continent on the planet and we can actually harness that. So we are starting to do that. And people like Saul Griffiths and others have written about that. Ross Garno, I don't need to go over that. But I think that's really exciting that the solar technology has come such a long way that this isn't pie in the sky stuff anymore. What else? I think, I guess for me, more probably more the, the cultural change that's coming about. It's this consciousness that I think is coming about that people realise that the world's changing. And as a result of that, there are all these social tipping points that are just starting to tip off like dominoes across the planet. And here in Australia, we saw that in the federal election. People said enough is enough. We it fight- was a climate election, the Finally. second one, the second <laughs> major one. And this time people- but It worked. Mm. And to me, I cried 
watching that coverage. I don't know who didn't. I but, cried uh, all night. <laughs> yeah. No, honestly, because I, I honestly felt as an Australian scientist, we, we cannot afford to go through another round of this. We have to. We have to come to the table. And especially what happened in Queensland with so many of the conservative seats shifting not just to sort of an independent or the Labor Party, but to the Greens. It's phenomenal. And I think that really reflects the cultural values of the societies that are out there. And, and that actually does give me a lot of hope, to be honest. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right. So Saskia's asked, how is this situation going to pan out if we continue the way we are? Okay. So basically the IPCC says that with two degrees of warming, which could happen as early as the 2040s, we could start to lose about 20% of land-based species. And when you start getting around- On top of what we've already lost. On top of what we've already lost. Yes. But by three degrees- we could be seeing about about a third of species die out. So the higher the warming gets, obviously, it becomes intolerable for all sorts of different species to be able to adapt. So that's what we were talking about earlier, about the, the rate of change. The problem is, something that concerns me, I guess, is that when we have sustained warming between two and three degrees, that's when you really start to destabilise the ice sheets. If we start to see Greenland and West Antarctica that start to decay, we could really look at about two to six metres of sea level rise over the next 2,000 years. So basically, a lot of that ice that's locked up starts to melt and that's that's a process that we can't shut down very quickly. By the end of the century, I mean, you know, we already have about a quarter of a billion people that live on land that's less than two metres above sea level um, and that figure could rise to 400 million by the end of the century. So we're talking about a lot more people being exposed. And a lot of these people are in low-lying areas and small islands We're and talking like that. New York City as well, by yeah, the way. We're, we're talking, talking Mumbai. We're Sydney. talking Shanghai. We're talking Sydney. We're talking major cities. We're talking about major reconfiguration of the planetary system, basically. And there are some pretty shocking statistics in there. So if the Greenland ice sheet melts, we could potentially see around seven metres of extra sea level and with West Antarctica, another four metres. So that is a lot of sea level rise. And the IPCC estimates that global sea level could increase by 12 to 16 metres over 2,000 years with peak warming of four degrees and an inconceivable 19 to 22 metres with five degrees of warming. So, right, that's game over at that point, right? 2,000 years, I just don't, though, fathom. Yeah, I understand. But the reason why the IPCC frames that is because once you start to melt an ice sheet, it just keeps going and going and going. And it takes a while to find that new equilibrium. So it's not instantaneous, I guess. That's the thing about tipping points, isn't it? Mm. Once the tipping point has happened, it's game over. It's not a matter of if, it's when. And this is the thing, it could actually melt faster. 
because melting begets melting, doesn't it? It does. It's a positive feedback loop, exactly. So, so we don't, it may happen way, way faster. Yeah, and the IPCC actually does acknowledge that in its sea level rise projections. So they basically say on average um, we could experience about a metre of sea level rise by the end of the century, but they say add another metre on due to sea cliff instabilities and ch- it's very difficult to model things like sea ice. Can we just really jump ahead to this because I'm scared we're going to miss out on this question along the way and this speaks to the fact that the IPCC and all climate scientists actually have to give what appear to be quite conservative visions and pictures and, and diagnoses because you've actually got to really ensure that the language reflects the science and therefore and the probabilities because insurance companies work with, I mean, if anybody wants a more explosive and motivating picture, listen to the insurance companies because they will then add those extra layers because they actually go, well, yes, okay, the scientists are saying this because they have to, but we know there's a very good chance. The question came from Siobhan Costigan and it refers to the fact that at some point before the report was released, a version of it was sent out and it was a little bit more extreme, or the language was, and then by the time the sixth assessment came out, it seemed to be watered down. But I think the reason for that is because of the, the language that IPCC authors have to use. So can you just talk to that just really briefly? Yeah, sure. But I think we need to just take one step back. So there's a ton of material that we need to synthesize into these reports. That's the first thing to say. And not everything can go in? Not everything can go in just because of the sheer volume. Okay. Like I said, it's already a million words, so we're really tight with space to begin with. Um, but what does make it in is basically when we have enough studies that provide us with the weight of evidence. So it's really, can we reproduce that result? Is it just one study? Was it 15 studies? Is it 100 studies? When we have confidence in those um, statements, then that's when we are really comfortable and we say there's there's high confidence in that statement. But then we also have these probabilistic um, estimates, which are calculated when we do have numerical values that we can actually estimate for things. In the report, there's things where you go, this is highly likely to happen. Something like very likely would be like a, a 99% chance, so which is pretty likely high. Is 90%. I hear the word very likely and I go, yeah, it's probably not going to happen. That's but right. you're saying that there's a 99% chance because of all the science that you've looked at, reams and reams of it, yes. it's Pretty much, I mean, I'd want to say with my journalistic hat on with a little bit of license, if I heard 99%, I'd go, it is categorically going to happen. And yet you as a scientist, you've got to say very likely. Yeah, so we have 10 different categories and I can't remember them all off the top of my head. We could check them. But, yes, it is absolutely. It's that that burden of proof that other professions don't have. So in the legal system, they need 50%. They only need 50%. That's not a very high You say bar. this in your book and it's so interesting. You only and, and it's the same in politics. You only need 51%, you know, for it to become the decision. It's a very, very high bar. So we're a very conservative community just to begin with and maybe that doesn't help. I don't know. And I'm just going to ask it for an atmospheric chat here. We've got Liana who um, works with me and she's actually sitting on this. Do you find that quite extraordinary? That was a yes for anyone who can't hear it. Like yeah. when it says, you know, it's you know, it's very likely, you'd probably think, oh, you know, round about the 56%. percent but it's actually hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Yeah, but like I said, we could we should double check exactly where those those lines mm. are because you know I've got a lot in my mind right now, but it's around about that. Yeah. Um it's in my book, you'll find it. So basically scientists that go through and jump over so many hurdles before we can say with certainty that we think that there is some 99% probability, right? Yeah. And so, for instance, when we're talking about material that might get cut out of, say, the summary for policymakers, which are very sort of top-line statements, if it is not rock solid 
and there isn't enough supporting information in the underlying report, then it gets cut. Now, I can assure you as scientists, we all bicker and argue about these things and about what gets elevated and what doesn't. But at the end of the day, we are really driven by the weight of evidence. So with the summary for policymakers, you can imagine they've taken that entire report and just condensed it down into just like you know, 50 pages, right? So it's not very much at all. In that case, it really doesn't reflect anything sinister. It's really just a case of it might not have had enough supporting evidence to be able to support that statement. That might not be the case the next time we do the report in seven years, but by then we probably have nuked the carbon budget. So I can understand. I actually do understand the sentiment of the scientists who leaked it. I I mean, I wouldn't have done that myself, I don't think it's helpful, but I can understand that some people felt very strongly about certain elements of the, the world report. needing to know that yeah. there's very conclusive evidence, but it doesn't quite hit the bar for IPCC. For purposes. IPCC, exactly right. Mm. There's nothing to stop that scientist later on, once it's the embargoes have been lifted, to then put their own private interpretation or their own expertise. I think it's out enough there. for people to understand that the IPCC has to be a conservative take on things. And it's really important to know that it is a conservative take on things. So add an extra whatever it is percent to to what is being said. But can I, yes. Okay. I, I, can I know you're not going to want me to say no, that. No, I but. concede that. No, no, I concede that. I do. I do concede that. But I, what I will say as well on top of that is that we also looked at these low probability, high impact scenarios. So so we actually looked a lot at abrupt climate change, at tipping points. That was really new for the sixth assessment report. So I think that is actually addressing public concern about these nonlinear changes, about things like, you know, methane bombs or runaway climate change and all these things. And actually, when you look at the evidence, there isn't a huge amount of evidence for some of those things. So, which is good. We don't want that, right? But it's a high impact. So it exactly. Has to so they're low likelihood, flagged. high impact. And we have these different scenarios and, and we, we, we go through them. And I think that is the scientific community's attempt to really address that out there. So we have to understand that th- there's a real process with this. It, it, it's extremely rigorous. If we came out and, and tried to hang our hat on just one single study, well, that's not what the IPCC does. That's what an individual scientist does. That's what makes the IPCC experience so extraordinary is that all of a sudden you've got everything, like all the jigsaw pieces in front of you, right? And bringing it all together. And that's for me, I think when I really got the seriousness of of how bad and serious and fast climate change is, that was my moment. I think the take home from this is that if you're the average person out there, if you are alarmed, feel safe that that your alarm is justified because anything that you're alarmed by is absolutely rational rational, and it's also it's the most definitive science possible and, and it's on the conservative end of the spectrum. It is a really rational response to really distressing information and that's why it's it's really unhelpful when people either go too far into the, the doomism end of things or super conservative. It also isn't really helpful as well. But I think what, what, what we're trying to do is provide the strongest possible scientific evidence base, and then we can decide what we want to do as a society as, as a result of that. She also asked the question, why does BECCS technology, which I think stands for bio, bio energy, energy carbon, carbon capture and storage, yeah. still feature as a strong part of IPCC mitigation scenarios. It essentially allows companies to continue to use fossil fuels so long as they then try to store the emissions used in the production back straight into essentially into the ground or 
by offsetting as well. But it's problematic because no one's policing it globally. And that means that there's opportunities for companies. You know, when you pay a couple of dollars to offset your flight, who honestly thinks it costs $2 to offset a flight to freaking New Zealand or whatever it might be? That's because, you know, people think they can plant a few trees. Well, we just don't know if those forests were already there, if the trees were going to be planted anyway, all of that kind of thing. So why is it included as a mitigation sort of scenario in the IPCC portfolio of reports? Well, firstly, yeah, it's a good question. And firstly, I would say that it isn't a big part. What the IPCC does is they look at a whole range of different solutions. So they look at geoengineering, they're looking at this carbon capture and storage and a whole range, solar radiation management, you name it, it's in there. It's not to say that we advocate for any of those things. It's just to assess the current state of affairs in terms of what does the actual scientific literature say about that. I personally think that if we're going to be incinerating our forests and then trying to bury the carbon, well, how about we just don't incinerate the forests to begin with? And the other problem there is that carbon capture and storage isn't uh, really proven at scale yet. So currently, carbon capture and storage doesn't even capture one-tenth of one percent of global emissions. So uh, in Australia, there's a whole lot of spin around the fact that, yep, carbon and capture and storage is going to save the day. And the Morrison government was very big on that. Mm -hmm. But still, it isn't feasible. I wouldn't be critical of the IPCC for including it. We just include it, as I said, as part of a suite of things, but it's not to say we're advocating for it. But basically, what we need to do is stop burning fossil fuels. Let's just try that first. We do need to think about how we're going to store carbon. But as we just said, a really effective way to do that is to restore ecosystems and to actually stop burning fossil fuels. So if we do those two things, then we get 30% from the land-based ecosystem nature-based solutions. And the 70% really comes from the burning of fossil fuels, which is directly related to combustion from, for human activities. I'd really encourage people who feel bamboozled by this just to do a little bit of reading on it. And in fact, what I'll do is share a few links in the week or two following this podcast so that people can get a bit of a feel for the carbon capture and storage debate. It's really interesting. And I think for consumers, when you see somebody's trying to reach net zero emissions by 2025, you can bet your bottom dollar it involves carbon capture and storage. We've got three final questions and we might have to keep them fairly brief. I know we could go on forever, but Anna has asked, regenerative agriculture, can it save us? Should we eat meat? Oh, I love this question. I mean, I'm not an expert in regenerative agriculture, but it does sound good. But one thing I did come across when I was writing my book is that 50% of the earth's surface is now turned over to agriculture. And a lot of that comes about from for cattle, right? There's a statistic I came across which says that the average American and Australian consumes around 120 kilograms of meat every year compared to four kilograms of the average Indian. That's just astonishing. And if you think about that in places like the Amazon, you're talking about raising primary forest to make way for the soybeans, which the cattle then eat. Can I ask, do you eat meat? No, I'm a vegan. You're vegan. And I've been vegetarian since I was 17 because I couldn't handle skin and veins and things in my right. meat. Right. I was just like an anxious So it's a different kid. reason yeah. than that, of course, the climate um, perspective comes into all of that. What I would add to that, Anna, and you've probably heard me say it before, the number one thing you can do is not waste whatever it is you eat, whether it's soybeans, meat, you can go backwards and forwards on the discussions on water usage and the applicability of some of this science in Australia versus in the US or the UK. It's very intricate. 25 to 30% of total food is actually lost or wasted. That is an extraordinary statistic. That's right. It's, it's even higher than that, um, they say, that it's really closer to a third. And if food waste was a nation, 
it would be the third biggest emitter after the US and China in terms of carbon emissions. And so they say that if you actually, if we all halved the amount of food we wasted, it's the equivalent of the entire planet switching to solar. So we can try all of these other ways of mitigating when it comes to our food. The thing that is the most obvious and is actually the most immediate thing we can do, which is just don't waste any of it, no matter what it is, we just kind of have a blockage to doing it. I I sit with climate activists who waste food, who don't take the last crust of, of bread home, who laugh at me when I go and scrounge up all the bits and pieces from plates. Anyway. Ian Fife has asked, I understand that the climate impacts emissions released today will not be fully felt for 25 to 40 years. Given we are in fact still increasing emissions, does this mean we will be unable to avoid complete catastrophe? I feel you've kind of answered that. Can I just add one thing? The premise of that question isn't quite right. So we will feel um, the impact of emissions directly. So once they're in the atmosphere, they're in the atmosphere. But maybe what he's getting at there is that there's a long residence time in the atmosphere. That is that it stays in the atmosphere for centuries. Carbon stays in the atmosphere for centuries. So that is a major problem, right? So we're still dealing with carbon that is came about from the burning of fossil fuels right at the start of the Industrial Revolution, which brings us back to the very first question, which is how do we know what we've done? So the cumulative effect as the emissions grow exponentially, especially since there's still so much carbon in the ground that is due to be released into carbon dioxide via all these mining projects, it is frightening because it's so exponential. I think carbon dioxide lasts about 100 years. Is that right? It can right? be even up to 500 years, yeah. Methane is shorter, which is why there is a little bit of a focus on reducing methane, which is why this idea of switching to natural gas as a sort of an interim measure is really problematic because we could actually be causing short-term, highest short-term damage when we don't need to be. And methane's a more potent natural gas. 80 times more potent than CO2. Exactly. So we don't really want to do that. I mean, we need to reduce all types of carbon-based emissions. There's no no denying it. So the question really is sort of getting at, what was the last part? It was basically- Does this mean we will be unable to avoid complete catastrophe? (laughs) Yeah, look, it's a good question. I think that this is part of the reason why the IPCC is doing all this type of work is we want to avoid a complete catastrophe. We have these different pathways open to us. If we continue to open up these different gas and oil fields and and new coal projects in a country like Australia, which is, it's insane, right? We can't do that. There are actually studies that say that we have to leave all this stuff in the ground. The Global Energy Agency, which is actually a little bit of a a voice piece for the fossil fuel industry, they themselves are saying we cannot open a single gas or fossil fuel project ever again. It's got to stop. Like when, when the lobby group for the fossil fuel industry, I mean, they're not quite that, but they're not far off it, are saying this. Every single piece of data is saying stop and stop now. And yet the Australian government has 160 projects on its desk waiting for sign-off. So, you know, when we were talking about what can we do about this, well, you need to get educated. So this kind of conversation is really important because you can arm yourself with the actual state of affairs, what is actually going on out there. And then you use your political power in many, many different ways. Target the Senate at the moment. I really think David Pocock and also the Jackie Lambie Network, they are onto this. They are saying no to these gas projects and fossil fuel projects. They're saying none. And the Greens as well. The Greens, of course. So the Senate, I think, 
is is there's a hope there's a lot of hope there there's the a ton of hope there and to be honest i think that we are in this really exciting era of australian politics and it's it's a new day that's dawning and it's not to say that there won't be some really serious battles and we'll win them all necessarily but this is a, this is absolutely a fight that is worth being yeah. a part of I think that answers Ian's question and I think in terms of what we can do, just it just has to stop now. It's, it's you know, sorry, but it has to. Yeah, we'll talk about the burning of fossil fuels one day as, you know, the same way we talk about things like asbestos. It's just, it's just time to stop. Final questions from Alicia. Uh, super basic, I know, but what, in your opinion, Joelle, are the five most powerful actions each of us can take to help keep climate change to a minimum? Well, firstly, I think the most important thing still in Australia is still to exercise your political power. There are still a lot of battles out there. As you mentioned, there are the whole range of fossil fuel projects that are slated that this government is looking to either approve or disapprove. And we provide or remove the social license for this sort of thing. And we just sent a very strong signal at the last federal elections that we don't want this. Most people said that this is the climate election. We don't want this. So write to your local MP or senator and say, I'm backing you on this because just just as a reminder to everybody, they have to, by law, open your letter and have it read by somebody in the office. So don't ever think it's a waste of time. Don't think that the election's over and the job is done. Please, please, please just I think that's the best thing you can do is write to your MP and go, I am supporting you or I would really urge you not to support this project because it's got to stop now. That, that would be number one. Number two would be to really try and educate yourself on the issue as much as you possibly can. And here's a shameless plug for my book, Humanity's Moment. I poured absolutely everything I had into that book. It's got my heart, my soul, and my mind in there. And it has a lot of, basically it distills down all the science. You don't need to have a science degree to, to read it. And you'll find where you can, because I think while I'm happy to go through and give my own sort of top three, everybody has their own three, I think. Particularly, we all have different capacity and ability and all that sort of stuff. So I don't want to be too didactic about what people should do because everyone has their own way of seeing the world. But I really hope that if you do read that book, you'll find a way forward for you. So you might be a creative, you might be an artist even, and you might produce an incredible film or painting or a photograph that changes someone's view in some way and bring somebody on board to then get behind this um, moment, which is really a social tipping point. And it's not just here in Australia, it's everywhere. Being a part of this social movement right now, I think is really exciting. Although it is that we, we do face massive challenges, but I'd rather be on the right side of history here, right? So I think it is a moment where we can really think about how, what kind of legacy we want to leave. You know, do you want to be part of the group of people that tried? Mm. I think that's a really wonderful note to finish on. Thank you so much, Joelle. It's been a great chat. Pleasure, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who sent in questions for this conversation. And look, if you want to join the membership community, head to sarahwilson.substat.com and I'll put that link in the show notes. I'm not sure if you're noticing the same development The climate discussion is starting to move in new and starker directions, I think, entailing a type of hope that in turn requires a maturity and a bravery that I think we're only just starting to appreciate. I'm not sure if you feel the same way, but I like where it is making us go. It's making us kind of bigger and nobler. We have to get bigger and nobler to keep up with the hugeness of it all, the meta crisis, as I've mentioned in a previous podcast. If we do keep up, if we do rise to this moment, as Joelle says, it will be humanity's moment. Keep it wild, my friends. It's a responsibility. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.